Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist, Adam Roberts. My patient today is Tejal Rao. She's the California restaurant critic for the New York Times, as well as a columnist for the New York Times Magazine. In today's session, Tejal talks all about moving to America from France. Um, I remember babysitting for my neighbors in like suburban Atlanta. And as soon as like the kids went to bed, I just opened the pantry. And I was like, ah, fruit gushers and Oreos and like all these American things I'd never had. And it was such a joy. Whether she worries about hurting a chef's feelings when she writes a bad review. I'm not writing to the chef. You know, I'm not writing a letter to the chef. I'm not writing something for the chef's portfolio. You know, I'm writing for for my readers. And the home cooking that she grew up with. My mom is, um, she's born in Uganda and she's, um, she's Asian, but she's, you know, from this community of East African Asians. Um, her family's from Uganda and Kenya. And my dad is from India and they both are really excellent home cooks. So without further ado, here is my lunch therapy session with Tejal Rao. Well, Tejal, thank you so much for coming on Lunch Therapy. Hey, thanks for having me. So um, we got to meet a couple of weeks ago, and um, I guess we'd met before that, but it was like 10 years before that. Uh, <laughs> but it was really nice to meet you in person. I, and you had moved to LA right before the pandemic started, right? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, I guess it was three years ago. So I, I had I did have some time before the pandemic to get to know the city, but yeah, not, it was a- um, not as much as it <laughs> would have liked. Yeah, I mean, did did that color your experience of Los Angeles in terms of how you viewed it? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, most of my experience of the city has been during the pandemic. And in some ways, it just means I don't, I don't know it that much pre-pandemic. You know, mm-hmm. I've spent a lot of time gardening and <laughs> I've spent a lot of time in my car driving around. And um, that's how I've learned about like the climate and what grows here and food businesses and neighborhoods. It's been Mm -hmm. in a very, you know, I've I've been out and about as much as possible, but I've also been a little isolated. Well, I think you're making all of your New York colleagues very jealous in your Los Angeles lifestyle because it it always seems you're in the garden. You you were drying out persimmons. I mean, you're really flaunting uh, your Los Angeles uh, way of life these days it seems like. I know. I don't mean to show off, but you know, it's January in LA and we have strawberries. Yeah, we did. And I got sugar snap peas the other day at the farmer's market. I was like, you know what? I I know it's February, January, but I love sugar snap peas. So I'm going to buy them. Um, (laughs) well, I, we're going to get to your lunch therapy in a little bit. I wanted maybe to talk to you a little bit about something. I'm sure your followers and readers want to hear updates on, which was you getting COVID and losing your sense of taste and smell, which you wrote about in the times. And I'm curious about like where you're at now and how you're feeling in regards to all that. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks for asking. It was, um, it was really scary when it happened, but it's also such a common symptom of, of mild COVID cases. So many people were going through it at the same time as me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did, I, the first story I filed about it, um, I didn't know at that point if I would get it back mm-hmm. and and then the second story that I filed was kind of about the process of interviewing people who've gone through it, interviewing people who thought that they might have cures. There's no cure. Um, mm. It's just kind of either you get lucky and you can form these new neurological pathways 
or you don't. Um, and yeah, my smell, my smell is back all the way now. And it's actually more sensitive in some wow. ways than it used to be. Um, so it's really interesting. Or maybe it's just that I'm paying really close attention to it because I lost it and it came back. Um, but it does feel more sensitive. And I guess that link between smell and taste must have been really apparent to you when you're trying to get it all back, right? Oh, yeah. You know how, I don't know if you did this in school where they make you kind of like hold your nose and see if you can taste stuff. And it's mm -hmm. really difficult to taste stuff when you're holding your nose because without um, without your sense of smell, taste is just very, very limited to, you know, sourness on your tongue or sweetness mm -hmm. on your tongue. And that's about it. Um, but yeah, when you, when you really have zero sense of smell, when it's happening in your brain and it's not like your nose is stuffed up, it's, it's pretty scary. It's, it's really intense. <laughs> yeah. So what was, I mean, I'm, I know you wrote about this in your article, but what was the first moment where you felt like you started to get it back? Um, oh, it's very vivid. I was, I was sniffing everything for weeks just to see, you know, just in hopes that I might get something. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately it was when I, I opened like a bottle of milk from the fridge that I was about <laughs> to pour in my coffee and it had spoiled and it was, which is like a very unpleasant smell, right. but because I hadn't smelled anything in so long, it was extra, <laughs> extra <laughs> horrible. Um, yeah, it just smelled like a, you know, smelled like a, someone had thrown up. It was horrible. It was horrible. But were um, you happy though? As horrible as I was, it was thrilled. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I was so thrilled. <laughs> It's so funny, Craig, uh, my husband is, uh, he doesn't have a good sense of smell. So if, if our milk has expired, he's like, smell this. And if I don't smell anything, he's like, taste it. And it's like, <laughs> I'm like his guinea pig. And so like not too long ago, I tasted this rancid milk. And to, yeah, to your point, it is absolutely disgusting. Oh, horrible. Tasted, like throw up. So then what was the next, like, what was the first positive experience you had when you got your smell back? Oh, I mean, well, after that, things kind of came and went. So I was, I was, I was um, frying garlic to see if I could smell it as it was browning or when it hit the pan or just mm -hmm. the raw smell of garlic on my fingers, you know, mm -hmm. um, all kinds of cooking stuff, like bashing lemongrass to put in tea, mm -hmm. um, my dog's breath when she yawned, <laughs> just like, and uh. I was smelling everything I could. Um, the garbage truck, when it went down the street, I was like, I smell you. <laughs> Right. It was, That's, it was yeah. great. <laughs> it sounds kind of thrilling. I mean, it, it kind of uh, reminds me a little bit of Grant Ackett's losing his um, sense of taste when he had tongue cancer. Yeah. And he wrote that yeah. whole book. And it's like to be a professional in this field where like th these senses are so important um, to ha have them come back has to be ex even extra thrilling because of yeah. what you do for a living. Um, I, did, I did think about him too. And that the level of, um, you know, the level of trust you have to have when someone is tasting for you, mm -hmm. what so it means to cook for someone else really, you know? Yeah. So were you cooking when you couldn't smell or taste food? I was a little, you know, just making soups or making congee or stuff like that at home, mm -hmm. really basic stuff. Um, but it wasn't that long. I'm so lucky. It was really, um, I think it was maybe a, about a month and then it started to come back, but it was very nonlinear. So it would come and go, or I would experience uh, phantom smells like oh. the smell of petrol or things like that. I um, have phantom smells too. I thought I smelled a skunk last night and Craig's crazy. <laughs> so maybe, maybe I'm just having a hallucination. Um, maybe someone was just like smoking a joint outside your window. Yeah. I think that sometimes could be true. So 
the other question I had was in terms of your career, because you are the West Coast critic for the New York Times. And what happened when you lost your sense of smell and taste? Like, did did you put a pause on writing about restaurants? Yeah, it was a, it was a short pause. But yeah, it was a, maybe for about a month. And I, I only wrote about stuff that I'd already reported. So mm-hmm. I'd already I had already reported some stuff in San Francisco and um, I think I'd already started my bagel story. So I finished it, but I didn't, I didn't start anything. I didn't report anything because I couldn't report, you know, for a while. Did you have any chefs like tweet out like this, this woman doesn't know what she's talking about. She has no smell or taste. <laughs> yeah. There was like one really mean person on Twitter. Um, <laughs> oh, really? That really <laughs> happened? It wasn't a chef. Yeah. It wasn't a chef. It was, it was, a you know, a, a non-restaurant person and I just muted them because my feelings were so hurt <laughs> oh no well I'm glad you got it back and now now everyone Thank should you. be quaking in their boots um <laughs> so Tejal maybe we'll transition now into your therapy session so what oh, did you yeah. have um, for lunch today oh I went to um do you, do you know this place it's called stuff I eat in no. Inglewood it's Never heard um of it. It's on, gosh, it's on 114 North Market Street. And I always remember that because one of the owners, Babette Davis, sings, she sings a jingle for it on Instagram that has the address in the jingle. So I always remember. Um, Yeah, it's a vegan restaurant in Inglewood. And I had um, the veggie burger, which, which is like kind of an old school, like kind of an old school hippy dippy veggie burger, like nuts Mm -hmm. and grains. And um, it came with like thickly sliced grilled red onion and cucumber, mm. both cucumbers and pickles and tomato. And um, the patty was like sort of delicate, a little bit crumbly um, with lots of like crispy bits, crispy edges. Mm. And uh, I think it had wild rice in it. It had a really nice texture somewhere between like pate and patty, you know, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, on a sprouted bun. And it came with these... Um, home fries cut really small but it was in a to-go container because I'm eating everything to go um so it got a little bit sweaty and smushy mm-hmm. in the to-go container but it was still got delicious it. um yeah I just wanted to check in out on them I haven't been there in a long time no that was really evocative that I mean I feel like I just ate that same burger after you <laughs> described it. so before we get into the details I mean were you are you, do you describe yourself as mostly vegetarian no I'm definitely like a pretty dedicated omnivore. I just have mm-hmm. an interest in in vegetarian food. And I think there's a lot of creativity in vegan and vegetarian food because of the restrictions involved. Like people come up with such interesting stuff and they well, have also, to. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, no, no, that's okay. Um, they have to just, they have to be creative and make really interesting choices. And you end up eating more of a diversity of ingredients. I mean, it's like anything else when it's not good, it's not good. Mm-hmm. And when it's good, it is. <laughs> well, it's funny. Cause I feel like that's the white whale right now for chefs is to figure out like the ultimate veggie burger in some way. Cause I feel yeah. like, I mean, superiority burger in New York, I've never had it, but Craig was describing it yesterday to somebody and he was like, it tasted like a real burger, you know, and he's not like a food critic. So, he, you know, I think that that trying to get that sensation and that the yeah. feeling of decadence um, that you get. But so actually in terms of your therapy, though, when I when you were describing that burger, I, I mean, I just immediately gravitated to your sense of like noticing things and how detailed you are in terms of what you notice. And I guess my first question to you would be, has that always been true? 
gosh, it has. And I actually think now so much what about so much of what I notice is um like an a, a way of appreciating it and enjoying mm-hmm. it. But when I was younger, I noticed stuff and was horrified and disgusted by it. I was a really picky eater as a huh. child. That's surprising. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. How do you explain the, the the transformation from being picky to eat to being an omnivore? I I I don't understand it. I mean, I'm sure I went through something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, when and this is when I was very small, not when I was like a teenager. Um, but I just I liked fairly like really simple things, you know, mm-hmm. like pasta with butter and cheese or even Mm -hmm. just a ball of mozzarella with olive oil and salt like Mm -hmm. I don't know I ate like a really strict Italian grandma or something it's so (laughs) strange um and then when I was maybe nine or ten I started to actually I started to cook when I was nine or ten and maybe it's cooking that made me love eating more Mm. and where did you grow up I'm sure I know the answer but I forgot I was, oh, well, when I was very small, I was in um, uh, Kuwait and Sudan and England. And then wow. we moved to France when I was nine. Okay. So, so you yeah. were eating very simple food in one of the culinary capitals of the world. So, <laughs> so did you, I mean, being in France, did you start to um, like explore and, and eat funky cheeses as you started to um, cook more? I did. Yeah. I, I liked, I liked, um, I had a friend whose dad, we lived in very rural, a rural part of France. And I had a friend whose dad was a hunter. Mm. And so we would eat at her house, you know, venison and her mother raised rabbits. We would eat rabbits. So I ate all kinds of meats that I hadn't really had before. Um, you know, the hair and blood sauce and things Mm -hmm. like that. Wow. Um, And did you think it was weird when you were having it or did you just think this was normal everyday food? No, at that, no, at that point, it just seemed really ordinary and Mm -hmm. nice, but ordinary. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how squeamish Americans are about things like blood sausage, but (laughs) you know, I just had that the other day because I went to horses um, and Craig was like, Oh, I don't know if uh, I'm going to try that. I was like, just try it. And it was delicious, but it's so, I always think it's arbitrary. Like what we decide, what parts of the animal we are willing to eat and not think Mm -hmm. about and the parts that we're not. Um, So when did you come to the U S I was a teenager. So I went to um, moved from, from France to Atlanta, Georgia, and I went to high school there. Wow. Okay. That's where I went to college and I love Atlanta, but was that a, me too. So what was it like though, coming from like eating, you know, hair and blood sauce <laughs> to Atlanta. Was that a, a tricky transition uh, gastronomically speaking? Oh my gosh. It was, it was um, just this wonderland of stuff because I mean, it's not like we couldn't get packaged industrial snacks in France. Of course you can <laughs> and everyone gets them. But my parents just, until we moved to the US didn't really buy that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember babysitting for my neighbors in like suburban Atlanta. And as soon as like the kids went to bed, I just opened the pantry and I was like, ah, fruit gushers and Oreos (laughs) and like all these American things I'd never had. And it was such a joy. Um, I wrote, actually wrote a column for the, for the New York times magazine about um, my relationship with California pizza kitchen, because that Mm -hmm. was like an important cultural touchstone for my brother. I read that article and I I related to it a hundred percent because the very, very first thing I ever cooked were frozen California pizza kitchen pizzas. I I would buy them in college and 
I think, I think you toasted them in the oven or, or like, um, maybe microwave them, but I love the barbecue chicken one that has cilantro. <laughs> and that was my, that was truly my like very first culinary endeavor. And I thought it was delicious too, but it's yeah, I funny. Thought it was like culinary genius like barbecue chicken and cilantro and red onions. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I still think it's genius. I mean, you know, they, they have a version of that, um, where is it? At, at Cosa Buona, maybe? Or and there's somewhere. La Mora um, does one um, occasionally. Or maybe La, La, um, Hail Mary might have something like that. But uh, yeah, that kind of Hail Mary does. Yes, yes. Yeah. Hail Mary does. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking about you as you were describing like these periods. It reminds me of Picasso. It's like you had your like France period, you have your, <laughs> your junk food period, you had your not eating anything period, <laughs> and then you had your COVID period. So, um, so when did you? um transition into like making food your profession well i mean right out of school right out of college i worked in restaurants i worked in kitchens as a cook mm -hmm. um first in like on the on the hotline in a steakhouse doing salads at a steakhouse mm -hmm. um on the fish station of a fine dining restaurant um, I was a pastry cook for a while like making ice creams wrapping wow. caramels and did you all that stuff did you have any training or did you just start out in the kitchen and learn on I, site? I went, I did go to culinary school, although I don't, I think like it was really cooking taught me how to cook, you know, mm -hmm. being in kitchens um, is, is, is where I learned actually how to cook and feel confident. Um, but how long were you in culinary school for? Like nine months, not okay. very long. Yeah. And, and um, I, I loved working in restaurant kitchens, but it was, I also, I did want to be a writer. I always wanted to be a writer. Mm -hmm. I just thought I wanted to write fiction mm -hmm. or poetry. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I knew I wanted to write. I didn't know that I could make a career in journalism um, well, until so later on. When you were re describing your lunch, there was something very poetic about it too. Even in like the the like rhythm of how you described your lunch, like the thick slices of red onion. I think there's almost like you know, like iambic pentameter. <laughs> like I was like very, very aware of like, you know, the rhythm of how you describe it, which is very, which I think works as a food writer too. It's like, you know, it makes it a pleasure to read your writing because of the poetry that's inherent to it. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Thank you, Adam. That's so nice. I wish you were my actual therapist. <laughs> <laughs> well, your therapist can't just praise you all the time. So I'm going to dig, uh, I have to dig a little deeper. Yeah. <laughs> but speaking of poetry, I'm curious, or in terms of writing, uh, out of just as a fan, like who were your influences and who, who were you reading as you came of age, I guess? Oh, I definitely read. I, I remember I had, um, I had Jeffrey Steingarten's books. Mm -hmm. I had Ruth Reichel's books. Um, I actually, I remember reading your blog when I was cooking in restaurants too, like I'm, and a, a few of the other, um, like really fun restaurant and cooking blogs. Oh, you're just flattering your therapist. And, now. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, like that's sort of what the, you know, that's like what the, what the food writing landscape was in, mm -hmm. I, I didn't subscribe to any food magazines and I didn't, I don't think I was reading food sections in newspapers just yet. But I loved, I remember loving Jeffrey Steingarten's column in Vogue um, and, and also, um, um, gosh, who else? 
did you read like MFK Fisher and all that? Kind I of did stuff? eventually, not right mm-hmm. at the beginning, but yeah, people people ended up suggesting her and and mm-hmm. other writers to me. But the but I would say the first food writer I loved was probably Ruth Reichel. Oh yeah, she's yeah. she's amazing. I don't I think she's she's one of the few food writers that really like makes you um, invested in the story that she's telling. You know, she yeah. really is always telling a story in some way, and you just get pulled in. And yeah, uh, it always kind of felt like she's like inviting you to come sit next to her, so she mm-hmm. could, you know, like I, I felt so close to the the voice of that. Like, I felt like I was right there. Um, yeah, and yeah. I always, I always felt like she almost self mythologized a little bit. Like everything always <laughs> seemed a little little larger than life. Like the way she wrote about Coleman Andrews and Comfort Me with Apples. You know, I, I was almost like he was her Mr. Big from Sex and the City. That's uh, so funny. And, and then like when Coleman Andrews sort of emerged in the world, I was like, oh, that's the, wait, that's because I'd never seen that's him. That's the or, guy? Yeah, I was like, that's the guy. I mean, I mean, he's very handsome, but I just didn't, it's just like the reality kind of settled. And I was like, oh, like these, these characters just seem so larger than life to me. And then it's like, oh, but everyone's just a real person. And um, even the way she described like Mark, Michael McCarthy, is that his name? Who's had Michaels in Santa Monica and like, because she wrote all about that in one of her books. And, it, and, then, and then he came to our table when we went there a couple, like a year or two ago. And it was just like, oh, this is just a guy. He's just like a normal person. <laughs> so back to you in terms of the transition again to the next period. I mean, I guess, I guess I'm curious how you went from cooking in kitchens and reading food writers and wanting to be a writer to actually fulfilling that dream and becoming a food oh, yeah. writer. Well, I, I spent about five years in New York, like freelancing. So I was doing, um, you know, searching media bistro and all mm-hmm. these different and Craigslist and picking up odd jobs here and there, like mm-hmm. French translation, um, copy, like copy editing. Um, I was still cooking. I would do like just catered events or things special things where just like I was cooking with one other person for a small group um I oh yeah this, and then then I had wrote a about that club. recently yeah, yeah that's what I was reading that, about yeah. then I started a supper club um um in my apartment that I did a couple times a month um depending on how much money I needed to make depending on how many other gigs I could get um I did that from like 2008 to 2012 and that's when I was able to get my first full-time writing job at The Voice like I'd sort of Mm -hmm. scraped together enough clips here and there Mm -hmm. to apply and they sent me on a to do a test restaurant review which I did and um, that was my first like real newspaper job. And was this so this was the Village Voice thing where you were you the official restaurant critic when you took that job? No, no, I was. Uh, so Robert Sietzema, yes, um, right, you know, okay. who had been there uh, for much longer than me, he, he he was the restaurant critic and I joined as the second restaurant critic. Mm-hmm. And we also ran the blog together, um, the food blog. Right, which, I remember that. Yeah. 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 So what was the first restaurant they sent you to review? Um, the very first place I went to was, was Perla, an Italian restaurant. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'm sure I ate there. Was it, was it in the West village? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, I was so nervous. I was so nervous to like have a restaurant review published. And I was also so excited to get to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, I should go back and read it. I'm sure it'd be really embarrassing. <laughs> So when you went in, like, were you, how, what was your state of mind when you went in and how did you think about the way you wanted to, to approach the review? I wanted, I, I remember, you know, I was reading at the time, I think Pete Wells was already at the times and mm-hmm. I, I, I 
I had been reading other reviewers and I thought the, the main thing I want is for it to be fun for someone to read this. Mm-hmm. Like I want the sentences to push you to go to the next sentence. Mm-hmm. And I want someone to get to the end of this piece. I don't want someone to skim it. I don't want someone to read the first few sentences and give up on me. Mm-hmm. Like I want to make this fun. Um, I don't know if I'm, if I pulled it off or not. Um, but I had fun writing it or I tried you mean that in that first one you don't know if you pulled it off yeah but that was sort of you know there are things I wanted to address like I wanted people to notice things that maybe they didn't always notice in a restaurant Mm -hmm. or see things they don't always see um but but I do remember thinking like I really want this to be fun to read (laughs) no I'm sure that's interesting you said that because that brings it back to my initial reaction to your lunch which was how much you notice so it seems like your superpower was to good use as a restaurant critic because there's a lot to notice um but i suppose like my my real question would be more about the human aspect of writing a review like were you concerned about you know hurting the restaurant by saying something negative or were you concerned about you know hurting the chef's feelings by criticizing a dish or was that something that you just try not to think too much about i mean i i do i don't i don't try not to it's impossible not for me to not think about that at all, even though I'm not writing to the chef, you know, I'm not writing a letter to the chef. I'm not writing something for the chef's portfolio. You know, I'm writing for my, for my readers. Um, But still I do think about the people whose work I'm critiquing and Mm -hmm. they're humans. And I, and I actually think I was more sensitive to that when I first started writing. I'm still quite sensitive to it, obviously, but When I first started, um, I'd only recently left kitchens. So I still felt this sense of almost like a sense of loyalty to the kitchen and this right. sense of like being part of the kitchen still. Um, and now enough time has passed that I don't think of myself as like a restaurant cook anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because it's like a theater critic doesn't necessarily like put on a play like or go mm-hmm. on stage and sing a song. But like, a, it's, but as a restaurant critic, I think it it speaks to like the breadth of your knowledge and, and your experience that you can also cook and you also have put yourself in those shoes before. So you know what, what's actually happening and, and you know how difficult that is. So I think that that's, you know, that's a good thing, I think. I hope so. Yeah. I, I do remember thinking at the very beginning, I was like, I hope this doesn't, um, I hope the way I feel connected to kitchens and people who work in kitchens, I hope that doesn't become diff, you know, um, mm-hmm like a, a weak spot or something for me, but I don't think it is. I think even though I'm not writing to the kitchen, I think like thinking about the kitchen the way that I do is just, that's just the way that I approach writing and food. Well, you, yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's no getting forward, away from it. Yeah. But to fast forward a little bit, I mean, you definitely have thrown some bombs recently. I mean, I'm thinking about the one, uh, the article about Napa and going to the French Laundry and, and Meadowood, which was sort of not dismissive, but sort of, um, you. It, it seemed like you were sort of ambivalent about those experiences. And I'm curious what those were like to write. And well, yeah, nervous. it's not, it's not, um, it's not that I was ambivalent. It's just that uh, I felt well, t- to be clear, at, at those restaurants, the level of skill is so mm-hmm. high and so many things are done so beautifully, so well. The thing that I was trying to communicate was why I found it 
not you know why it wasn't thrilling mm-hmm. um when things when things are great you know and you don't connect with them like what does it mean and how does it feel yeah. and i think a lot of fine dining um n- not all fine dining but a lot of fine dining feels that way to me right now it's like uh meant for someone else or mm-hmm. it's uh it's just it's difficult to feel real joy yeah <laughs> Um, when, when you're, when you're in the face of it and it shouldn't be like that. Um, and I, and I really wanted to communicate that dilemma. I, I hope I did. Oh, you totally did. And I think it's really interesting because as you were responding to, to my over-dramatization of what you wrote, <laughs> uh, I was thinking about like who your audience is and how our country is so divided right now. And there's like the 1% and then there, you know, it just, like it feels like the, it's to answer the question of like who is this for it seems like it's not necessarily for like the people who are really really interested in food and where it's going it feels like that's where it's been but it's not necessarily where the future lies because mm-hmm. um, I feel even in LA I feel like there's there's barely a restaurant like that I mean there's Providence um, but it feels like the most exciting places to eat here are not in any way formal um, and it feels like the the newer chefs who are emerging are more interested in creating atmospheres that are convivial and welcoming uh, than int- intimidating. Yeah, and and I think like it, it, it is possible to have fine dining mm-hmm. where it doesn't feel like everything's moving along on a on a track and right. you know everyone is present and there is warmth and um, a sense of spontaneity and I, I think that's possible. Yeah, I mean, but it can I be been... really welcoming and really warm. And, and it's just that it's very difficult to do. Like not every fine dining restaurant with Michelin stars does it well. I feel like um, Blue Hill Stone Barns does that well. Mm. They're very, I mean, at least when I went there like five or 10 years ago, I don't remember how long it was, but there was something kind of kind of casual and welcoming to it as opposed to very stiff and formal. Um, but maybe I'm misremembering. But um, back to you. So I'm curious, like to rewind now, when you were at the Village Voice and you wrote the Perla review, was that mostly a positive review? Um, I would honestly, I think I would. Yeah, I I do remember really liking it. The food was really good. I'm just going to look it up and see if it's actually online because I don't remember. That would be great to, (laughs) as a supplement, maybe I could like link to it in the the post. But I guess I guess I was... Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I guess I, I was leading to you, though. Um, what was it like writing your first really, really bad review of a restaurant? I don't remember what the very first one was. Um, yeah, so clearly not that memorable. <laughs> um, but also, this was a long. This almost ten, this ten more than ten years ago. Right, um, right. Almost ten years ago, and I do think that I have this sense of. I don't know if this happens with you, like after I finish a piece and I've done all the research and I filed it, like that's it. It just kind of, Mm -hmm. it goes out of my mind almost completely. And I immediately start on the next thing. I don't really go back and um, I don't, I don't go back to, to, to those stories. Although you're going back right now and rereading your Perla. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting, I, I, I couldn't get past the caption on the, the very first. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> very embarrassing. The caption is, the lamb saddle is ready to ride. <laughs> <laughs> Did you write that? I don't think so, no. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm going to say no. 
I guess, I guess another, uh, maybe a different question, the, the different slant on that question is, do you remember the first time you were really nervous to publish a review? Oh, every time. Okay. Um, oh yeah. I see what you're asking. No, I was nervous with this very first one. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm still, I still get like a slight rush of some kind of anxious energy every time I file a story. Yeah. I mean, is it, is it something that as time has gone on, it's gotten easier or does it, does it feel the same as it did at the beginning? Um, in some ways it feels the same. I mean, I, I always, you know, the pieces come together pretty quickly mm -hmm. and I always think, you know, is this the best possible version I could have written in this amount of time? Mm -hmm. Did I say things exactly the way that I want to? Am I being clear and precise? Mm -hmm. um, am I going to regret not saying this thing that I couldn't fit? Like there's always, there's so many little tiny negotiations you make, like what you leave out, mm -hmm. what you put in. And I think even if I had a month to work on a story, I'd still feel that way. Well, it's, it's, um, it's almost like a dish in a way. It's like at some point you have to like send it into the You got to send it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, as you're, as you're talking, it's sort of making me realize the nuance in what you do. I mean, it seems like I'm asking these questions, like, you know, do you, it's like, like the Roman Colosseum, like, did you give a thumbs up or did you give a thumbs down? But what it sounds like, <laughs> what sounds like what you're really trying to do is capture using your gift for language, the experience of being in this particular place and eating this particular food and not necessarily rendering judgment, although that, that's, somehow sometimes I'm sure a part of it but more just to like let the reader experience what your experience was if that sounds right yeah to a certain extent for sure I want I want someone who's read the piece to feel you know it's the thing that I was saying um I loved about Ruth's writing when I first started reading food writing uh you know you want someone to feel really close as mm -hmm. close as possible to what what you're saying you know um, you yeah. want to bring them, you bring them in as much as you possibly can, especially because with restaurants, so many people who read the piece are not necessarily going to go to the restaurant. It's mm -hmm. not like a review of an album where you can just play it and everyone can listen to it mm -hmm. um, or, or a book that everyone can pick up and read and they're reading the exact same text. That, that it's, you it's did. like theater in that way like you know people, yeah. I, I read like the new york times theater reviews but I, I doubt i'll be able to see most of the things i read so yeah um but i'm curious like you know when, when i started out and you might have seen this because you read my blog way back when i wrote a review of le cirque on my blog called only a jerk <laughs> only a jerk would eat at le cirque and i remember <laughs> you know it caused like a huge controversy it's like who does this guy think he is um blah 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 but i'll never forget i went to a party like it was a gourmet i don't know if it was a gourmet magazine party that's actually where I met you, um, but some party where uh, the owner's son, uh, Mauro Maccioni, was at the party and he marched up to me because I had my picture on my blog and he was Ooh. like, you know, he introduced himself and he, he didn't say anything, but he was just so friendly, actually. He was like, it's so nice to meet you. And it made me feel even worse. But I guess I'm bringing this up to ask, like, have you ever had to come face to face with a real person or some somebody that you wrote about like did it come back to you in, in your real life or has it mostly have you been able to keep it separate it's i it's definitely separate and that's also because i don't um like that that party that we met at is a very <laughs> rare it's very rare for me to go to a party like that right and, and I, after i became a critic like i almost never um never do industry stuff restaurant mm -hmm. industry stuff 
don't, you know, have one or two friends in the business, but only because I've, you know, those friendships predate the job. So I just try, I, I work to keep it separate, mm-hmm. um, which is weird and awkward and, you know, also good. Well, it seems like, very, if, uh, yeah, I mean, if I could be anonymous again, I think I could write more freely about my experiences. Mm. So I totally, I totally get that. Um, well, I think, did we skip a step in terms of going from the Village Voice to the New York Times? Was there anything in between that? Oh, yeah, there was a lot in between that. Gosh, um, I briefly, I was at Sapphire Magazine briefly as mm. an editor. Um, I was at Tasting Table when it was still an email newsletter um, very short, like the 250 word pieces. I did those for a while. And then I was at Bloomberg news as their restaurant critic, which was extremely Mm. fun. Really? Um, really? Why was it so fun? Yeah. Oh gosh. It was, it was a new, you know, they had just launched this Chris Rouser who's, who's Mm. still in charge. Um, he had launched this new vertical called Bloomberg luxury. So we had a watch critic, a car and motorcycle critic, um, (laughs) a restaurant critic. And it was just, it was an amazing team of people who were experts in these very specific things. Um, and then we also had a really, you know, quite a big budget. So I got to do very interesting stories. Um, they sent me to Tokyo and Buenos Aires and wow. it, was, it was really fun. Um, and it was only for a couple of years, but it was super fun. And when you traveled like that, or when you write restaurant reviews, do you mostly go alone or do you go with other people? Oh, I almost never go alone. When I'm traveling, sometimes I'll end up somewhere alone. Um, but most of the time I, I either, you know, I try and set, I'll have my mom, like, do you know someone in this town? Can you set me up on a friend date (laughs) or, you know, a friend of a friend? Um, and, and when I'm home, I always am with, with people. Yeah. Right. It's, you know, it's difficult on, if you're on your own, it's really difficult to get a sense of a restaurant Hmm. because you don't, you, you can't try that much off the menu. Um, but then on the other hand, sometimes when you're alone, you get a really good sense of how attentive the service is or mm-hmm. how kind the service is. Cause when I've been alone is when like a bartender has just like made me feel really, you know, really welcome and, mm-hmm. and taken care of. Um, so it depends. It's both like my biggest fantasy and my biggest fear to go to like a really nice restaurant alone. And <laughs> when I was in Europe, um, Craig had a movie playing at, um, two different film festivals. So he had it playing at the, it was the Skeleton Twins and it was playing at the Edinburgh Film Festival. And then it played at the Munich Film Festival. And in between he had to fly back to the States, but I went with him to Edinburgh. And then I traveled by myself to London, Strasbourg, Uh, I went to Paris. And so I did this amazing trip for Europe. But when I went to Strasbourg, I booked myself a table at this like Michelin starred restaurant that almost was like in a castle or it was like in in a park, like in a beautiful building. And I've never been more self-conscious in my life (laughs) than eating there. And I think they thought I was a Michelin inspector because I think they were probably did. They were like, who is this guy? Like, because I was like taking pictures of everything. and, And I think they were just like no, nobody knew what to make of me. And I was just, I just felt so self-conscious and I, I was, yeah. it was hard, very hard to relax, but I think that's more my issue than like a universal one, but maybe you relate. No, it can feel that way. I think it's really different when you're, when you're sitting at the bar, you're not mm-hmm. kind of on display in the dining room by your, when you're by yourself. And when you're sitting at a table alone at a place like that, where there's probably at least two servers with eyes on you all the time, mm-hmm. yeah. like that's, that's a lot. 
That's a it lot. It was a lot. Um, so when you took the job at the Times, was the because you you do a column for the magazine section, um, and then you do your re reviews for the West Coast. But which was the first job? Uh, I started as a reporter on the food okay. desk, so doing just a bunch of different kinds of reported pieces and features, um, and then also doing the column for the magazine. But I'm actually, um, my last column is coming out in a couple of weeks. Oh, and no. then, yeah, and uh, well, it's 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 bittersweet. I mean, I've written it for five years and I love that, that I love the column, um, but I'm also really excited to do, I'll be doing features instead. So, oh, great. So to, to just have more space on the page and more time to work on my idea in my head, you know? Yeah, um, I think that, I that's I tend great. to write short, so I'm excited to have, like, the challenge for me is writing 4,000, 5,000 and longer word pieces. Um, I'm really mm -hmm. excited to just push myself to do that. And when you're starting a, um, a feature versus a review versus a column with a recipe, do they all have their own distinct processes or do, is it all kind of the same approach when you write those um it's it's i mean when it's a recipe story it does often start with a dish or with a recipe and that's not always the case with other pieces but the writing process is the same for everything for me it's just like i don't think of them i don't think of them differently when i like sit down and write yeah mm -hmm. and do you do like um what Anne Lamott calls a shitty first draft and then rewrite? <laughs> or do you try to make it perfect the first time around? I, I edit as I go and then I edit a lot when I'm finished, mm -hmm. um, but I, I edit as I go. But I don't necessarily go from beginning to end. Sometimes I start, um, sometimes I just have a sentence but it's not the first sentence. It's mm -hmm. sentence like four paragraphs deep or something. Um, and then I work out from there. Um, well, I'm curious. I want to. I keep jumping around, but there's so many questions I want to ask you, and we're almost oh, no. out of time, which is crazy. Um, but I wanted to ask you. So that job of being the West Coast critic for the New York Times. I mean, it sounds like a big mantle to take on. And I'm curious. It's actually like, California, California, specifically California, okay. which is still yeah, is still, it's a quite a big place. Yeah, it's a huge state. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, so California critic. But when you got that job. Were you overwhelmed? How did you first think about it? And how did you want to approach it? I was overwhelmed. I did not know where to start. Mm -hmm. And I had read stories about how, um, you know, when someone gets a job, uh, and I actually, this might have, if we keep talking about Ruth, but I wonder if this is a little nugget of information that was tucked away in one of her books. I'd heard something about when critics start at the times that they have all this time and this budget to kind mm -hmm. of, have you know get an education in very in specific things before they start writing mm -hmm. and you know that's i would have been really nice to have like a year <laughs> yeah to get used to <laughs> living in california just to, yeah. just to learn as much as possible and eat as much as possible and interview as many people as possible um but i kind of but you know obviously that that's absurd um <laughs> so it felt I was overwhelmed and it also felt like I was learning in real time in the pieces I was writing you know mm -hmm. like if you look if you kind of go back to the first piece I filed which is about um I think the first piece I filed from LA was about old sort of institutions LA institutions um steakhouses and taco places that mm -hmm. 
people had told me were special or or and that's that was my introduction to LA in many ways and then that was also my first story and if you trace those if you trace all the pieces I've done it's kind of like I'm I'm going out and trying to learn as much as possible about something and enjoy it as much as possible and then right turning around and writing a story about it too. <laughs> so I'm curious now that you've had all this experience and you look back on your initial work I mean do you think there's anything you got wrong or do you think that um, or or maybe a better question is like how has your perspective on California changed through this job? It's I mean it still feels like this vast unknowable place like I could mm -hmm. spend my whole life here and you know just just be dipping my toe in too mm -hmm. but there's just there's so much going on which is so exciting which is part of why I love it here yeah. um that makes sense. it's it's like a thrill um I don't think I got anything wrong I mean I feel like the pieces I wrote were at least true to the moment that I wrote them in yeah I don't think that was you know? the right question yeah it was more yeah. I guess I was curious more about your arc of being here but when you got this job was it did, did the job come first and then the move to California or did you were you planning to move to California and then the job came the job came first although I have family here you know my, my brother and his wife are here and my nephews mm -hmm. and in LA and I really missed them and wanted to be near them mm -hmm. and and was having these little just like daydreams about living in Los Angeles near my family um so when the when the job came I was really excited to make the move I kind of yeah. skipped over your family I mean we only have like 10 to 15 minutes <laughs> left but can you talk a little bit about like the food that you grew up with um and if, oh, there, yeah. was there a lot of like home cooking at home yeah lots of home cooking we did go out to eat but it was if we went out to a restaurant it was for a very special occasion like a birthday dinner or mm -hmm. maybe my parents wedding anniversary actually not my parents wedding anniversary because that they went on their own and we've got a babysitter and that was like the <laughs> one night they got to go out without us um so my <laughs> My mom is, um, she's born in Uganda and she's, um, she's Asian, but she's, you know, from this community of East African Asians. Um, her family's from Uganda and Kenya. And my dad is from India and they both are really excellent home cooks. Hmm. Um, when I was growing up, my mom cooked during the week and my dad cooked on the weekends. So, and they cook very, they would cook together. They would cook separately. Like, usually if they did anything fun it was people coming over and them cooking lots and lots of food for a party mm. like and what were some of the dishes you remember them making oh my gosh they would make um like seafood paella and mm. or they'd make lamb biryani um they went through phases which makes sense to me because I think I do that too like, yeah you know there's Picasso. one summer where <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where you, you know you only want to make pizzas and you're obsessed with like getting making a really good pizza or you know mm -hmm. whatever it is and they definitely did that too um and gosh I do lamb biryani is still a special thing that that she'll make for a big group like if it's 20 people or 15 people my mom will do that um but they cooked a lot and day to day it was really simple like day to day they'd make you know, like ball and rice and a vegetable or maybe mm -hmm. roast chicken and a salad, um, uh, chicken Kiev. My dad really loved chicken Kiev. <laughs> and where, where are they now? They, uh, they live in Washington state. Oh, yeah. okay. I think I knew that because yeah. that's where Craig's from. Um, oh, okay. and so were they happy that you moved to the West coast too? 
oh my gosh, we're all in the same time zone for the first time yeah. in ages. So yeah, it's really nice. And what did they make of, of all of your career? Um, you know, basically this amazing career you've had, like, are they, is this something they wanted you to go into? Are they, were they surprised <laughs> by it? Um, I, you know, I haven't had that conversation with them recently, but they, they do love, you know, they love food and they sort of like respect, have a lot of respect for people who make food well, people who care about food or the things mm -hmm. they grow. So, so I think that um, they, they understand and appreciate the work I do mm -hmm. at least a little bit. Um, when I was freelancing, that wasn't the case. They were like, right. Can you, why don't you get a job? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like my parents right now. And I'm 42 <laughs> years old. Um, so did you ever bring them along for a re review? And, and did they have a lot of opinions? Oh, my gosh. You know, not, not that often because we we are so rarely in the same place. But I did. I convinced my mom when I, when I was working at Bloomberg, I convinced my mom who was then living in Thailand to mm. meet me in Tokyo. Wow. And so she went to Noma Tokyo with me. Oh, which, wow. That's so cool. Which was like a really fun experience. Um, and she was just this fearless, like she was having the time of her life, you know, eating raw prawns covered in live ants and, <laughs> um, <laughs> I could never, I would, I yeah. don't think I could do that. And I remember I did the, I did the, um, there was a non-alcoholic tasting option. And I did that because I was really interested in the concoctions they were making with juices and, you know, and my mom did, so my mom did the wine tasting <laughs> and she just, she, she had a great time. And it, it's fun to, you know, I think when you're reviewing a place, you're really, you're reviewing your own experience. Mm -hmm. you, you, you're not, but there, but there was definitely something, there was something really delightful about seeing, um, about seeing someone I love just like enjoy herself so much right yeah that makes a lot of sense I mean on the flip yeah. side I wonder like do you ever have to separate like if you're in a bad mood and you go to a restaurant or you just got some bad news or yeah. something is that difficult to like separate out like is this the restaurant's fault or is this just something I'm projecting onto the experience yeah that's a good question I think you know it's it's not possible to just come to a restaurant in a space of total neutrality. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Yeah. Nobody, nobody, I mean, I'm maybe, I'm not capable of that. So I, I understand that I'm bringing with me mm -hmm. a bunch of feelings and, you know, a bunch of stuff I've been carrying around with me that day. And I just yeah. try to be aware, aware of it. Yeah. I, I got into a huge fight with my mother at the restaurant Milano. Is that how you say it? Milano in New York. Um, oh, Milano. Yeah. Yeah. Milano. And we got into this gigantic fight I don't even remember what it was about I think it was tied to the fact that she used to want to like buy me clothes and I was like you need to stop doing that because I'm a man <laughs> I'm an adult not so much a man yeah and um, but she was so offended and we were screaming at each other and I remember the waitress looked traumatized like she kept like backing away from the table like I'll come back when you guys are ready to order um and, but that restaurant like I can never go there without thinking about that fight so um it's funny yeah those kinds of experiences definitely color the way you see a restaurant or anywhere, probably. Um, well, Tejal, so the, every session begins with what did you have for lunch, but it ends with what are you having for dinner tonight? Oh, I don't actually know the answer to that, but um, I will, I, there are, there's a bowl of um, black eyed peas soaking in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And I think that my husband is cooking something. Um, and <laughs> okay. I'm not sure, yeah, I'm not sure if, um, I'm not sure if I'll be home and I'll have that or if I'll be out picking something up. Um, I'm not sure yet. 
how does <laughs> how, how does that get determined mm, well it's three o'clock and mm-hmm. you know i had a I had this late lunch and so mm-hmm. i uh, it's really important to me if i am going to go go out and get something from a restaurant tonight that i have some kind of appetite mm-hmm. you know you don't want to get something and it feels like a chore to eat it like we were just talking about um bringing bringing emotions and feelings to the meal and being aware of that i also think if you don't have an appetite yeah you just you cannot enjoy something that much so so it kind of depends on timing and so how often do you like have a, to um do you have to experience a new restaurant or try a new place is it pretty much every day pretty yeah pretty much every day i've i've been trying to take you know i started this newsletter um this the vegetarian cooking newsletter oh, right, so i right, try to yeah. take at least sundays to cook at home mm-hmm. um or maybe even one more day than that but but at least sundays uh but right now i'm not i don't know if you're dining if you're dining out um but i'm we only are, doing yeah. takeout right now or okay. outdoor dining yeah, we are actually following your your lead and uh, going tonight to the one of the sushi restaurants you just wrote about, which is in our neighborhood, which is Morihiro. Oh, um, that's going to be great. Yes, because Craig loves sushi. And it's funny for those who are unfamiliar with where I live, which is Atwater Village, a, a little sushi restaurant opened up, which was impossible to get into because it's so good. So for Christmas, I made a reservation like way in advance. And then, uh, then Tejal wrote this amazing article in the Times about the best sushi in LA. And you had it in your top five, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's spectacular. Um, I'm so excited for you that you're going tonight. Yeah, I'm so excited too. So we're trying not to eat too much today. So yeah, yeah. So you're saying so you're not really eating out at restaurants. So does that limit? Are there certain restaurants you can't go to now because they don't offer? I mean, if a place if a place doesn't do outdoor dining or takeout, Mm -hmm. then just for the next few weeks. I mean, hopefully, um, I I hope these numbers don't peak any more than they are. I'm not sure Mm -hmm. if we if if basically when the numbers start to go down again, uh, we'll yeah. reconsider that. Just so many of the places, the restaurants that I follow on social media have had outbreaks over mm-hmm. the last few weeks, you know, I've had to send staff home or clo- it just doesn't, it, I don't know. I don't feel, uh, I feel like taking a small break right now is. Yeah, fine. no, that's smart. Yeah. We had, we had a, a scare right before Christmas where we had a dinner party and somebody brought a friend. And then the next day we found out that that friend tested positive for COVID. Oh. So that like spent, sent us into a spiral and we were, you know, we were like quarantining and then we luckily didn't get it, but yeah, it's everywhere right now. I, th- I guess our attitude is we're going to try to be as safe as we can and wear masks and, but we still are going out um, just because we, you know, after last year, it feels like, we, we need to be in the world a little bit, but I understand mm-hmm. for you, like being out every day would, that that's kind of different than just going out yeah. every so often. Yeah. Um, well, before we end, I'd be remiss in not bringing up the most controversial thing you've written recently, which was your bagel article. Um, which basically, I, now I think when I asked you about this, you said the headline, you didn't write the headline, right? Or is that correct? Right. Uh, the, the, I mean, the, sto- the story is not about is not a East Coast versus West Coast. Yeah, story. we should. Well, we should say for people yeah. who don't know, you basically mm. the article basically said looking for the best bagels, like go to California, right, or something like that. Like the best bagels are not in New York; they're in California. Was that what? Yeah. It? Yeah. Yeah. And so, did you get you? You probably. I mean, talk about like 
you know, throwing a firebomb into the, onto the internet. I mean, that must have elicited huge reactions, I would imagine. It did. There were so many angry commenters. I'm sure there's so many comments that were just too, they didn't pass the, you know, the, the, they weren't cleared to be published because they were so <laughs> vicious. Um, <laughs> they had some horrible emails. Um, but, you know, I am, um, yeah, I really do stand behind that story and, and the bakers featured in it are so excellent and mm-hmm. courage bagels is wonderful. And yeah, well, um, it's funny. Cause I had Ed yeah. Levine on this podcast and Ed wrote the New York eats book, like 10, 15 years ago. And like, is like an authority on New York food. And when he was on this podcast, he said the best bagel he ever had in his life was at courage bagels in LA. And oh, so, yeah. And, but so I went there too, based on what you wrote and what he said, and I will also stand by what you said. And it, it truly is the best bagel I've ever had in my life, for sure. Because <laughs> it's so unique. It's like, it's like floats out of the carton. Like it's, it's got this like lightness oh, to that, it. And then the crust is somehow so crusty, even though yes. the center is so light. Yeah, it's really wonderful. Well, I stand by everything. Although you I said. can't get one anymore because, you know, the line is so <laughs> ridiculous. I haven't yeah. had one for ages I know they need to expand (laughs) do you ever think about that when you write about a place that you're going to change like your ability to go there I I, well I don't think about it in terms of my ability to go there but I yeah I do think oh this is a very small because I am I'm often drawn to you know businesses that are just one or two people doing something exceptionally well yeah and I think and and it feels like a you know it's like a blessing and a curse to have Mm -hmm. to have the attention Yeah. In fact, like um, one of my lunch therapy patients, Dan Adut, uh, had a favorite, like, um, what kind of place? Izakaya or um, what's it called where they grill the food? Um, Totally blanking. But uh, he had a favorite. Yakitori? Yakitori. Yes. He has a favorite Yakitori restaurant. And when he went there, he told the chef, he's like, I'm going to put this on my social media. And the chef was like, please don't like, don't, please, I don't no. want to. Yeah. He, he likes it the way it is. So yeah, yeah I'm sure there's some chefs out there who kind of just want to keep things small. So, um, well anyway, well, Tejal, thank you so much for doing this lunch therapy session. I hope it was, uh, this was so fun. Thank fun, you. Yeah. And let's uh, hang out in the new year. Great. Yeah. Talk to you soon. All right. I'll talk to you later. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.